0: I've been a part of Bannockburn Baptist Church since uh, about six months after it started. It started in May of 1973, and, and as I got older, I always wondered, Bannockburn, I mean, that's a name, right? And, and there was no such movie as Braveheart at the time that Bannockburn started because there's a great scene in that movie where the battle of Bannockburn is described. And I always wondered what was the deep spiritual and theological reason why we were named Bannockburn until one day I was old enough to read a street sign. And I saw that we're on Bannockburn. That's about it. That's the magic of Bannockburn Baptist Church. But I bring you greetings from brothers and sisters in Christ in Southwest Austin at Bannockburn Baptist Church. I'm very, very grateful to get to be here today. I'm very grateful to get to be friends with your senior pastor, with Matt Cassidy. Uh, I just, I'm really, uh, words don't do him justice. I want you to know how much I love your pastor. I know you do. Uh, But as I've gotten to know this man very, very well over the past handful of years, I've gotten to know his heart. I know how much he loves you. I know how much he loves this church. I know how much he loves Jesus Christ. Uh, Also, like you, I've gotten to be around him enough that I could fall in love with his mind. Uh, There are very few people like him uh, that stand and teach from God's words every week. And, And I get to be around him regularly enough that it probably seems rude, but as he talks, I pull out my cell phone, and I begin to take notes. And I know he thinks that I'm texting people, and I'm just a really inconsiderate kind of guy, but I'm not. What I'm doing is I'm stealing all of the good stuff that he says every time that we talk together because good stuff just seems to come out of that man's mouth. And I love him, and I'm thankful for the chance to study God's Word with you today and to worship King Jesus as we've already done previously this morning through song. Earlier this summer, summer of 2017, my wife Sharon and I did something we had never done before. I've known her since we were 12 years old and only been married for about 25 years or or so uh, to her. But I had never really had a chance with her to load up the family wagon and just go on a long driving trip. And so our summer time off this summer, I said, this is what I want to do. I want to load the Tahoe to the very top, just the two of us. And I want to drive. and I want to go to parts of this country that I've never seen, although I've flown over them many times before. I'd never been to Wyoming. I'd never seen Idaho. I'd never seen those parts of Utah that look like they just almost are comical. they're so beautiful. and and so, majestic. And so we did that. We loaded up the Tahoe, and we cut through Lubbock as quickly as we could, and we cut through. I hope you're not from that town. I'm going to insult just about everybody here at some point, so just hang on, okay? But we cut through the corner of New Mexico, and and we got into Colorado, where I have been blessed to spend some time in the Rockies, and I love the Rocky Mountains. But after a couple of days there, it's time to go. And we headed north of Denver, and we got into the great state of Wyoming, and then we took a left And if you've been there before, you know what I'm talking about. You know how true it is. But from that southeast corner of Wyoming to the southwest corner of Wyoming, there are hours and hours and hours of nothing. 85 miles an hour, we're driving through nothing until finally we took a right hand turn and we headed north. And if you know your geography, you know where I'm going at this point. We're going to go see the Tetons. We're going to go to Jackson Hole Wyoming and in that little town of Jackson there at the base of the Grand Tetons and this is a place that I'd always wanted to see and just north of it as you well know is Yellowstone National Park but the Tetons I've heard a lot about and then I finally got to see them as we got closer and closer to that town and with my little old iPhone camera I took probably a hundred pictures of these mountains but those are the Tetons Those are the Grand Tetons, and they are appropriately named, for they are unbelievably beautiful and majestic. As cool as this picture is, it does not do them justice. And I was like that proverbial tourist that you see, right? When you've been somewhere for a long time, and then here comes the tourist with your camera. In the morning, in the middle of the day, in the late afternoon sun, as the sun was setting, I was constantly taking pictures of the Tetons. I could not get over them as we were there for a handful of days. You know what I also noticed though while I was there taking picture after picture after picture of the Tetons is what the locals were doing. Those folks, those men and women and children that have been there for a long time, you know what I saw them not do? I didn't see them staring at the Tetons. I didn't see them as fixated on those mountaintops as I, a first time visitor, was fixated. In fact, what I actually saw was a bunch of people that seemed to have gotten over the Tetons. They were kind of numb to the beauty. They seemed almost desensitized to the grandeur of God's creation right there in this little mountain range called the Tetons. I wonder at times, as we begin to approach the Scripture that we're going to look at today, and as we approach this Christmas season, Are we kind of like those locals we've kind of gotten over this story we've heard it so many times we're numb to it Yeah, they're just it's always there we know it well my hope for you today and for myself personally today is that today as we look at this passage and as we pause and meditate upon what God has written for us many many years ago as we leave this building in this place we leave in awe of this baby, the firstborn son of Mary, who we know to be Almighty God. And as we unpack the scripture, I also want to try to answer a question that maybe I'm the only one that ever asks it. But why a manger, why a manger? And so read along with me on your Bibles, or on your devices, or even up on the screens. We're gonna be in Luke chapter two, verses one through seven And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've heard it a hundred times, haven't you? You've read it a hundred times. You know the story top to bottom. If you're like me, a a person that's grown up since 1965 when, when the Charlie Brown Christmas first came out, every year you hear and you read about this story, you know this passage very well. You might have become a Christmas local where you no longer stop and pause and meditate upon the grandeur and the glory of the words that we've just looked at. And before we go any further, I want to remind you of this. We must never forget the identity of this baby. This is the very child about whom the angel Gabriel, about nine months prior, came to Mary. And what did he say about this child? He said, he will be great, and he will be called the son of the Most High. Who is this child that we find lying in a manger? He is the son of... Of the Most High. That name, that Most High, that is an ancient name that's used for God. Throughout our Old Testament scriptures, you'll see it over and over and over again where God is called the Most High. And what it's really stressing is his power as the sovereign ruler of the world. He is the Son of the Most High. Luke calls him in chapter one of his account, he calls him the Son of God. He calls him also Savior. He also calls him Christ the Lord. See, this baby is the high and lofty one who has dwelt forever in absolute sovereignty, in absolute power, in perfect omnipotence. This is who this child is. God came in the flesh to us. Paul, in his letter to the church at Colossus, said it this way in just a brief handful of words. He says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is the baby in the manger. What do we know about this baby? We know that this baby in the manger is unlike any other baby that's ever been born in all of history. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who knows all things. He is present everywhere. He has all power. He has all power. Authority. He is the one who merely speaks, and it is done. He is the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. He is the one in the midst of a raging storm who said, be still, and nature obeyed him. This baby is the one who later, outside the presence of a dead friend, who had been buried for several days, called him by name and said, Lazarus, come out. And the scripture tells us, and the dead man came out. This is the baby in the manger. Luke today invites us, enter this, this gloomy cave and see this real baby. Remember, he forevermore has now taken on human form. He's taken on a body of arms, and legs, and eyes, and ears, and a mouth, and organs just like you and I. He was lying there, a real little boy with human nature, while mysteriously is the Lord of all glory. We know the story that he was placed in a manger, and just to be clear, I hope you understand, what was a manger? A manger was a feeding trough for domestic animals. He who made cows and donkeys and sheep and goats is now as a baby lying in this manger. For by him all things were created, and there he was placed. Here in Bethlehem, about six miles outside of Jerusalem, we enter into this smelly, cave-like stable, and who do we find? We find God in the flesh. Are you not astonished at the Incarnation? How can we ever lose sight of the majesty of this event? How can we ever become Christmas locals where we're just numb and desensitized to this great reality? I know for some of you today, like me, we need to once again be in awe of the Incarnation of Jesus Christ. Others in this room, it may be for the very first time, you've really slowed down and thought this through. And my prayer is that you are wrecked by the truth of what Jesus Christ came and did on that day. Regardless, we must all be amazed at the glory of the fact that God has broken into our world and joined us. So let me ask you, what do you do if you're not? That sounds good, Clay. That's all sweet sounding and I've read it, and I've even heard you describe it again, but what do you do if you're not astonished at the incarnation of Jesus Christ? The meter just doesn't seem to move any after you've heard this story or read it or about to read it in the next couple of weeks to your family. What do you do? And in response, it seems to me, I'll ask it this way. I'll I'll respond by answering my question with the question, what would you tell one of the locals who are living there at the base of the Grand Tetons to do about the fact that they are numb to the majesty of the mountains that are right outside of their home? What would you tell that man or woman or young person to do? I think what you'd tell them to do is first stop. You need to stop. You need to slow down. You need to pause. And not just stop, but you need to look up. You need to pull your eyes from the everyday busyness of life, from the ordinary routines of life, quite honestly and bluntly from the mundane aspects of our everyday life, and you need to look up and focus on Him and His majesty and His beauty. We need to meditate upon His wonder. We need to meditate upon His perfection and His might. And in doing so, I think we can once again begin to be astonished by Jesus Christ. My wife, Sharon, who I've already mentioned uh, briefly, she I've known this girl since we were 12 years old at O. Henry Junior High, so it's kind of full disclosure when it comes to the two of us. We know everything there is to know about each other because we grew up together, and so there's really just not a whole lot of mystery or secrets. One thing I didn't realize, though, about her was that she was a collector of nativity sets. And when I say collector of nativity sets, I'm not exaggerating when I say we are fast approaching 100 nativity sets under my roof at my house. And if you came with me this afternoon, I could show you over 75 of them, which are currently scattered in every nook and cranny. I don't have a home big enough for 100 nativity sets, but every year this thing just keeps growing. And and they're from all over the world. And it's not that we have been all over the world, but you know the way this works. If you collect anything at all, you have friends and loved ones who might be in Rwanda, they might be in Guatemala, they might be in Hong Kong, they might be in Dresden. And they see a nativity scene. And who do they think of? Sharon. Sharon needs another one of these. And so these are generous people. I, I, I don't mock them. I really do because they've been very, very sweet to us to even think about us like that. But here comes yet another one. And, and just recently, literally as I was preparing for this very Sunday, as we decorated the house for Christmas, I paid specific attention to every one of the 74 nativities that are in my home right now. And I noticed something about them. First off, they're all amazing, and no two are alike, and it really is pretty cool to see these things. Guys, it could be a lot worse. You could collect, like, figurines of cats, okay? And I'm sorry if you're a cat lover, but my house isn't full of figurines of cats, but my house is full of nativities. But every single one of these little sets does something that just struck me these past couple of weeks. What they all seem to do is they seem to sentimentalize the nativity. See, we have smiling cows, and we have a big, fat, little baby Jesus there in the manger. And there seem to be everybody's cheerful and joyful as they're in this cave-like stable scene with fat, cuddly sheeps. A manger? Really? You want to know what a manger was really like? And that scene, it was a brutal scene. See, his parents were too poor to find a decent place for a woman to have a baby. Has it ever occurred to you that Joseph had so little clout, he had so few connections, that he could not provide anything better for this child to be born than a stable where domestic animals gather in the nighttime, a place of darkness, a place of dust and cobwebs, you and I can only imagine what it must have smelled like day after day after day. Why? Why, God? Why did you appoint this place for the arrival of the eternal Son of the Most High? I have just a couple of responses that I want to share with you. Three, because you can't be a good Baptist pastor if you don't have three, right? So I have three potential responses to why? Why a manger? In the first is this, I believe that the manger reveals our radical problem. See, Jesus was born there not because his parents made bad decisions or not because of some mythical rejection by the innkeeper, right? But Jesus was born there because God so determined it to be. He said, a cave, that's where my son is going to be born, See, his radical arrival points to a radical problem, and you and I both know what that problem is. The Scripture teaches us that this radical problem that the world suffers is that of sin. Our sin required this unimaginable plan of salvation where the perfect and holy God had a plan for redeeming his creation. His children are enslaved by sin. A ransom price has to be paid for their liberation, and that is why He came, and this plan always included a rescue mission that required a humbling or humble and suffering servant. See, the birth had to happen this way, the virginal conception, this cave in a manger, his family's later flight to Egypt when word was that the boy was going to be killed. See, the way of rescue came through Jesus' humiliation and his suffering. This is the pattern of things to come. This is the way things are gonna be for Jesus. There was a radical solution to an extreme problem and there never was a plan B. The second reason I propose to you is for why a manger is this, the manger highlights his humility. Long before his arrival, we had been told by the prophet Isaiah what? What did Isaiah tell us about this Messiah? He told us that he would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He who was eternally rich became eternally poor. Of course, he was placed in a manger, isn't it fitting? The one who did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. The one who took on the form of a man, quite honestly, a man from a no-name town, the apparent son of a pair of scandalous parents, who later was found working as a carpenter, and even later after that was followed by a bunch of fishermen and peasants. He who came to suffer and to die on a cross. He who would be buried in a borrowed tomb, a manger, and a cross, these are two extremities of His earthly life, and don't they seem to fit together like hand and glove? See, the humility of the manger perfectly fits the humiliation of the cross. Where else would He be found at His birth? The manger highlights His humility. Let me give you a third idea for why the manger, and it's this the manger declared him to be the king of the forgotten. Like many of you on this campus and at this great church, I've had the opportunity to travel and do missional work in various shanty towns and slums of North America and Central America. I've been to the slums and the shanty towns of Matamoros, where I've ministered to people that live on a trash dump. I've spent time in Tegucigalpa, the great capital city of Honduras, in seeing people living in conditions that are beyond your wildest imagination. Like many of you, I've spent time in, in Guatemala, in, in the capital city of Guatemala City, but also in the mountain regions and villages. With no power and no running water, and I've seen things that changed me forevermore. Just recently this year, I spent time in the Dominican Republic. And I hope I don't sound cold or calloused about this, but it almost gets to the point where if you've seen one, you've kind of seen them all. They all seem to be the same in the mount of brokenness and despair in the midst of which people are living. Babies are being born and raised. I've seen the invisible, you know who I speak of, the poorest of poor, the disenfranchised, the people who are despised and downtrodden. I've seen children living like rats under a bridge in downtown Tegulcegapa that crosses over a little riverbed there. And as the gospel of Jesus Christ has been shared with such people, do you know what I've also seen? I've seen that people always relate to Jesus Christ. See, hope and healing is found in the one who knows all about their pain and sufferings, for he was one of them. He didn't have to fake it. He was a man on their own level who seemed to belong to the poor, and he seemed to belong to those who were overlooked. For who would ever tremble as they approached a manger? Throughout his earthly ministry, what do we know about Jesus? We see such people run to him, drunks run to him, prostitutes and other scandalous people run to him, liars and cheats and tax gatherers are drawn to him, the diseased and the leprous and the lame are drawn to him, demonized people are drawn to him. So-called unclean people of Jesus' day run to to Him. Followers of Him who are dismissed as being ignorant and unlearned people race to Jesus Christ. And don't you know it's also true to this very day? Even today in 2017, drunks run to Jesus. And prostitutes run to Jesus. And other people living scandalous lives still race to Jesus Christ. People who lie and cheat and are full of pride and hate and anger still run to Jesus Christ. Those in our town, those in our society who we overlook are still drawn to him. Those who we marginalize love Jesus Christ. People just like you and just like me still race to him. So I just want to ask you some questions this morning. Are you also as desperate for His love and His mercy and His forgiveness as those so-called overlooked ones are? The fact of the matter is is that all of us without Jesus are what? We're dead in our trespasses, and we're living in darkness. See, He is the only one who took the nails for us, and human wealth and human stature are meaningless to Him. He didn't come like a roaring lion. He didn't come like a raging storm. He didn't come like a general or a great philosopher. He didn't come like a king living in a palace surrounded by guards, but rather he came as the king of the forgotten, and that is to Christ's glory. Consider this with your holy imaginations, if you'll give me that phrase. What happened to the manger after they left? At some point, Joseph loads up this child and Mary, and they then begin to travel off to Nazareth. What happened to that manger? I think what happens is this. See, without Jesus, it's just a feeding trough. Without Jesus, it's just once again a place where animals come And are fed. It's just again a smelly stable. See, a manger is a manger. What brought distinction to the manger was Jesus. Only Jesus brings glory to that cave. When he was gone, so too was the glory. That cave returned to what it had once been. And there was no unusual power, I believe, found in that trough. If we had been able to travel there the day after and reach down and pick up some of the hay that must have been in there, I don't believe our hands are now healed or our bodies have healed of disease. The point is this when Jesus is absent, things are merely shadows and shells and darkness and empty places. And that's true whether it's in our churches, that's true whether it's in our nations, that's true whether it's in our hearts. Without Christ, we're ordinary. Without Christ, we're hopeless. Without Christ, we're as forgettable as an animal's feeding trough in a forgotten small town. But thanks be to God that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So as I begin to wrap up and close, I just want to ask a couple of questions for you to consider as you leave this place. As you continue to fully enter into this Christmas season, do you need to change from being a Christmas local to one who's in awe of him? Have you forgotten what it's like to be amazed at him? I pray that you soak in these truths this day. I pray that God will restore to you the joy and the excitement that accompanies such good news. I also know, though, in a room of of this size, that there's people who are going to need help with that. Because I do know that for many people, this season is particularly hard. Not everybody has beautiful memories of Christmas like I do. I know there's a lot of pain at this time of year. For some in this room, this will be your first Christmas without your father or without your mother. I know for some in this room, this may be your first Christmas without your spouse of many, many years. Lord forbid there's some in this room who this might be your first Christmas without your own child. And all I can say to you in such a situation is this. Like Mary and like Joseph... And like all those others who came to him in that place, simply focus on the face of Jesus. He loves you. He will carry you through this time because he knows your pain, and he is a God who brings comfort. Emmanuel. God with us. It's a divine and holy time when the Son of the Most High came and was placed on a manger. I praise this name today because of it. Do you? Let's pray. Father, I'm glad that you still wreck our hearts. Father, I'm glad that Your patience seems to be eternally long. Father, I'm thankful, as I know people in this room are thankful, for You sending Your Son Jesus to rescue us. So, Holy Spirit, would You continue just to do Your work in in the men and women's hearts and in the young people's hearts in this room and in my heart too, Father. Would you soften our hearts? Would you continue to passionately pursue us with this good news of your gospel? Lord, forgive us for ever being numb to you. Forgive us for ever being desensitized to your power and your majesty and your perfection. Lord, will you just spark again that hot fire in our very souls? That is our prayer to you this morning, Father, and it's in Jesus' perfect and holy name that I pray. Amen.